All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you now for just really all you do in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you'd settle our hearts, that we would be sponges for your word. Not for my opinion, but for your word given to us, preserved through time, and, uh, and yet even in that, you give us the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. And so your word is truth. And your Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, so we pray that they would just work together to uh, bear fruit in our lives that would bring glory to you. And so, Lord, we just celebrate that, and we thank you for it, and we pray you'd just do that work in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, if you would, um, turn to Ezekiel chapter 17. Lord willing, today we read 17 and 18. You may recall last week I said, Lord willing, we read 16 and 17. And you all graciously let me bow out at the end of 16. So we pick up 17 here. And I thought it would be valuable maybe uh, to revisit a little bit of history of the winding down years of the nation of Judah. Everybody okay with that? Yes. All right, both of you are okay with that. So um, winding down years on the nation of Judah, the last godly king that we know of, well, we know the last godly king was a man by the name of Josiah. Josiah had three sons, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. All right? All right. Jehoiakim further had a son named Jehoiachin. And the reason is, we read these, all these Jehoahs, and we kind of get a little confused on who they are, right? And so the history goes that Jehoahaz uh, was, after the death of Josiah, Jehoahaz reigned. He reigned three months. He got taken off by the Egyptians. And the king of Egypt uh, removed him and replaced him with Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim reigns for a while. And uh, at the end of his reign, I'm sorry, during his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes and doesn't completely conquer the Jewish people, but he sort of conquers the Jewish people. That's in 605 BC. And there's a group of captives that go off uh, to uh, Babylon, and uh, that's sort of the first skirmish. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken, as well as some others at that time. What you need to know for today then again, in 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes back. This time he has another conquest of Jerusalem. He removes Jehoiakim and replaces him with Jehoiachin. All right? That's in 597 B.C. So by 597 B.C., Ezekiel, by the way, is one of the captives in 597 B.C. in that second conquest. So by 597 Judah and Jerusalem specifically have been conquered twice by the Babylonians. And the vibe, the dialogue, the narrative is some are saying, well, that was just good luck on the part of the Babylonians. Others are saying God's punishment is coming. God is trying to get our attention. And so Jeremiah in Jerusalem and Ezekiel in Babylon are saying, 
No, God is trying to get your attention. You need to repent. You need to realize that if you don't repent, Babylon is going to come again. Guess what? Did they repent? No. Therefore, guess what? Babylon comes again in 587, 586 BC, and by this time, they completely remove Zedekiah and destroy Jerusalem. Is that fair? So we're in this time period of Ezekiel between Ezekiel in 597 and 586 when the narrative is trying to figure out what do we do and what might be the solution to our problem. The problem is Babylon has come twice and the solution might be like we just need to get the right man in office. Think that's a solution? Thank you. All right, you can turn it off. Okay, so that I think would just be a healthy backdrop for us. So last week we talked about chapter 16. Uh, God gave us the parable of um, sort of an adulterous bride. I would refer you back to that. It's a great story. Um, um, representing the nation of, of Judah at the time. And the take-home message of that is don't try to satisfy your life by self-indulgence, right? So if you weren't here last week, uh, I'll give you the efficient answer don't satisfy your life by self-indulgence. Okay? Everybody got that? We're in church. That We're okay with that one. Okay? Chapter 17 goes on to say, here's be my summary statement for that, if self-indulgence doesn't work, and you find yourself in some kind of, um, I don't know what the right word is, quagmire? Does quagmire translate? Fracas? Do you know fracas? Raise your hand if you know fracas. Okay, quagmire. You find yourself in a quagmire, right? And check this out with me now on human nature. Regardless of time, regardless if we're talking about the 6th century BC or 2022. Regardless if we're talking about the ancient world or America. Step one is... Don't look to self-indulgence for, for satisfaction in life. Step two is, when you realize that isn't working, don't look to the world or man-made solutions or the right political solution or anything else. Look to what? Look to God and what's the first word out of the mouth of John the Baptist recorded in the Bible? Repent. Repent. So that's the point of chapter 17. So when you realize, I'm in a fracas, then repent. So verse 17, chapter 17, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel and say, thus says the Lord God. So God's going to give them another sort of riddle, parable. They were intrigued by these kinds of things. Say, thus says the, the Lord God. A great eagle with large wings and long pinions, full of feathers of various colors, came to Lebanon and took from the cedar the highest branch and cropped off its topmost young twig and carried it to a land of trade. He set it in a city of merchants. Then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile, land, a fertile field and placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots were were under it. So it became a vine, brought forth branches, and put forth shoots. All right, so that's chapter 17. We'll come back next week and pick up chapter 18, right?
Clear as mud, right? It was a riddle. Do you feel like it was a riddle? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was a riddle. <laughs> now, thankfully, God's going to give us the interpretation starting in verse 11. But let's just say this. The picture is the great eagle is the king of Babylon. Okay? Large wings and long pillions. We know opinions. We know that Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful man. Babylon was a mighty nation. Okay? He came to Lebanon. That would be the nation of Judah. And he took the cedar, the highest branch. That would be Jehoiachin. Remember I said there was Jehoahaz, then Jehoiakim, then his son Jehoiachin. And then in, uh, in, after, at the end of Jehoiachin's reign, Nebuchadnezzar takes him and removes him and replaces him with Zedekiah. And here's the thing. God, I want you to notice this. Often God gets a bad rap. The God of the Old Testament gets a bad rap, right? We know that the God of the New Testament is all about what? Love and grace and all that. The God of the Old Testament, we, we think he's like mad. He's got an attitude. And he's just waiting for the opportunity to punish somebody, right? Sometimes we hear that. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so... I want you to see this even in the downfall, even in, in God's punishment of Judah and their capital city, Jerusalem. First of all, Babylon comes in 605 BC. That'd be a good time to repent. They didn't. Babylon comes again in 597 BC. That'd be a good time to repent. And they didn't. And then God, Babylon, when they come, they remove Jehoiachin and replace him with Zedekiah and make sort of a covenant. Babylon kind of makes a covenant with Zedekiah. Tell you what, you just be there as a vassal king. You're now part of our territory. We've conquered you, sort of. But we're letting you remain sort of a nation a little bit. And we've, we've thumped you a couple times. But we're letting you remain uh, a sort of a semi-autonomous nation. Does that make sense? And we're giving you some, some space. This is all about God's grace. And you know the story. By the time 586 comes along, they're tired of Judah's rebellion. And so that's the point. And so uh, Zedekiah leaves some of the people in... I'm sorry. Nebuchadnezzar leaves some of the people in the land. Their branches kind of turn toward him. Their roots are underneath and he leaves their roots and it becomes kind of a vine that brings forth branches and puts forth shoots. So he's painting a picture here of the remnant of Israel that's left there in, in uh, Jerusalem. But verse 7, there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. Behold, this vine bent its roots toward him, toward the other great eagle. From the garden terrace where it had been planted that he might water it. Now we know from Jeremiah and we know from the pages of history. So I just said God sort of set this thing up, put Zedekiah on the throne, said, hey, you just serve us. And Jeremiah has been saying, you just serve the king of Babylon and, you know, repent and things are going to be okay. But what do they do? This other great eagle is the king of Egypt. What did Zedekiah and the rest of the remnant left in Jerusalem do? They looked to Egypt for help. 
And they said to Egypt, hey, if you guys help us out and thump the Babylonians, then everything will be good. Is that a solution to our spiritual problems? Is there ever, please hear me loud and clear, is there ever a political solution to a spiritual problem? Never. Now I say this because we live, I don't know if anybody's noticed, we live in a land of political swings. Anybody notice this? Woo! Woo! And we all read the news, right? And regardless of where the pendulum is at, right, those who like the pendulum over here, they say, finally, get rid of that guy. Right? And those who want the pendulum over here, they say, we got to get rid of that guy. Right? And these are all solutions, political solutions. Or political, now, I'm not saying all of our national woes are the result of spiritual problems, but can we acknowledge that maybe at least there might be a little bit of that? Right? Righteousness exalts a nation, Proverbs says. But sin is a reproach to any people, right? So please, okay, let's be responsible citizens and, and, and um, do all the things responsible citizens do. But don't look for, spirit, for political solutions to spiritual problems. Judah, they're looking to Egypt to try to fix their Babylon problem. Well, they didn't really have a Babylon problem. They had a sin problem. And that's the point of this parable. So God helps them understand. Verse 8, it was planted in good soil by many waters to bring forth branches, bear fruit, and become a majestic vine. You know, God left the remnant there in Judah, and they could have done fine if they just repented and stayed there, but they looked to Egypt for further solutions. Say, thus says the Lord, verse 9, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? All of its spring leaves will wither, and no great power or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? It will wither in the garden terrace where it grew. And so here's the point. It never works to reject God and look for a political solution. So chapter 16, it doesn't work to live a life of self-indulgence. Chapter 17, when we do live a life of self-indulgence and we reap the consequences accordingly because Galatians tells us do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever man sows, he's going to reap. If he sows to the flesh, he's going to reap corruption. If he sows to the spirit, he's going to reap everlasting life. So when we sow to the flesh, reap corruption, don't look for a political solution. Don't look for any man-made solution. And that's all God's saying to these people. Verse 11, now he gives us sort of the the play-by-play of it. He says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, Indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. And he took the king's offspring, made a covenant with him, and put him under oath. So that would be, I mean, the political offspring would be, the, would be Zedekiah, even though he was the uncle of Jehoiachin. Too much, too much detail. But he took the king's offspring, Zedekiah, and made a covenant with him and put him under oath. 
He also took away the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be brought low and not lift, himself, lift itself up, but that by keeping his covenant it might stand. So people like Daniel have gone captive. People like Ezekiel have gone captive. Verse 15, But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? No. No, not at all. And so here's the point. The point is, Zedekiah, instead of just surrendering and taking his punishment, he goes to Egypt so he might get horses and many people. Horses and many people don't solve spiritual problems. Egypt throughout the Bible, just if you're into what's called typology, there's, there's, uh, there's pictures, particularly in the Old Testament, but throughout the Bible really, of 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 things that we see as representative of, th of other things. So Egypt, the nation of Egypt, is a type or a picture of the world system, the world solution, right? Remember when Ab Abraham lived in a time of famine? Where did he go for help? Egypt, right? Didn't work out so well for him, right? And so that's kind of a pattern that we see throughout the Scripture is, is people in desperate situations or in challenging times, they go to Egypt, right? When we face challenge so often in our lives, what do we do? We go to the world. Man, if I just had a little more money, if I just had a little more political clout, if my man were in office or my woman were in office, things would be better, right? That's, that's Egypt mindset. Verse 16, as I live, says the Lord, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build a war, build a wall to cut off many persons. So Pharaoh, if you go back to the parable at the beginning of the chapter, Pharaoh's kind of a passive player in this whole thing. Like, Zedekiah is looking to Pharaoh for help, but Pharaoh's, he's not going to deliver. He's not going to come up and fight against Babylon on their behalf. Verse 18, since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, in fact, gave his hand and still did not, it did all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath, which he despised and my covenant, which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. I will spread my net <coughs> over him and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and try him there for the treason which he committed against me. All his fugitives with all his troops shall fall by the sword, and those who remain shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken. And so God is going to deal with Zedekiah. He's going to deal with the rebellious remnant there in Jerusalem. So even in that, God is going to bring judgment after lots of warning, after two skirmishes from the Babylonians, after warning, after warning, after warning, after sending prophets. And even in the midst of this prophecy, God says this in verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. What's that sound like? A tender one that's from this highest branches of the high cedar. That's Jesus Christ. 
and I will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, and it will bring forth bows and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell, and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and done it. So, interestingly, when Zedekiah was destroyed, when Zedekiah was killed, it would have seemed to the Jewish people the line of David is cut off. Now, you may know from further back, God promised David, basically, the Messiah is going to be descended from you. Your, one of your offspring is going to be the Messiah, right? We know that played out that it'd be, to be true. But in the moment, you fast forward a few generations, you got King Zedekiah, an offspring of David. He's a part of that royal line. He's killed, right? His sons are killed. It looks like, you know... Um, looks like it's the end of the line. But it's not the end of the line, right? And because uh, when those captives return after 70 years, one of those is Zerubbabel, and his great, great, he's the great-great-grandson of Josiah through Jehoiachin, not through Zedekiah. Okay? So, through that middle of the three brothers, sons of, of Josiah. So anyway, the son Zerubbabel, descendant of Josiah through Jehoiachin, is going to give rise to this tender twig, which is Jesus. He's going to bring out restoration and order as described here, the completion of which has not yet been fulfilled. And so uh, that's yet even in God's declaration of a prophetic punishment that's about to come, after lots of warning, God gives this glimmer of hope, by the way, the day is going to come where I'm going to bring the Messiah. It's a beautiful picture of the, of the heart of God. Everybody okay with that? You okay for chapter 18? You can say bring it on, bring the heat. Yes, absolutely. I'd feel like I got cheated if we stopped now. You could say any of that kind of stuff, all right? In your own minds. Uh, chapter 18. This chapter takes a little bit of a turn in the uh, narrative, but because we go now from these parables to more of a, of a um, discussion into human responsibility. And we need to put this in biblical context, okay? Now, you, if you've been here for any period of time, you know that there's this, you know, we've, heard, we've said many times, there's this delicate balance between human responsibility and God's sovereignty, Right? Human responsibility is, I'm responsible for my actions, right? right? Right. God's sovereignty is, I'm not saved by my actions, I'm saved by the grace of God, Ephesians chapter 2, right? And so these two things fit together in ways that our brains don't completely understand. So we have to always keep that in mind, but this, the reason I say all that is, this chapter is all about the human responsibility side. So if you took this chapter... Without the context of Scripture, you'd say, I'm saved by my works. And I'm lost by my sin. Now, does that make anybody feel settled and secure? Not at all. Because that's a part of the picture. 
That's part of the picture. We know there's a principle of sowing and reaping, what I just talked about. There is a, a real principle of sowing and reaping in terms of life, life with the Lord. But we cannot take away or speak of it in the absence of the fact that God saves us. God does the work in our hearts. Okay? And so this is very important. Fair enough? As we go forward on this, the word of the Lord, chapter 18, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Now, interestingly, in Jeremiah, I believe chapter 31, he also references this little proverb that they used. And so, you know, they use little proverbs. It's curious to me why we use man-made proverbs when we've got some good ones at our disposal, right? And so, but anyway, I mean, it doesn't mean you can't have little pearls of wisdom and put them on plaques and buy them at Hobby Lobby. You can do that, okay? But we also have scripture. So these guys had so neglected the scripture that all they had was these nuggets of worldly wisdom. And so one of their nuggets of worldly wisdom was, you know, the fathers ate sour grapes and the children uh, have their teeth set on edge. Essentially, the children are puckering because the fathers ate sour grapes. You see the idea? The idea is what our forefathers did, now we're reaping the consequence of it. Catch that? What our forefathers did, now we're reaping the consequences of it. God says, stop saying that parable. Stop saying that parable. Stop blaming the prior generation. Now, there's a little bit of it, if you kind of take it out of context again, and this is why I made a big deal to point out the context. The Old Testament law did say that God, quote, visits the sins of the fathers upon the children. That's in Exodus 20, Exodus 34, Numbers 14, Deuteronomy 7, okay? However, it also said that the fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin, Deuteronomy 24, 16. So the idea here is, and this is the best way I can put it together in my mind, there are certain things patterns of behavior, even sinful behavior, that tends to run in families. Does that make sense? You, you recall Abraham, the story I talked about earlier, Abraham went to Egypt during a famine, right? His wife was beautiful. He said, hey, when we get there, let's tell her you're my sister. That way they, the king won't take you into his harem. And she's like, yeah, whatever, right? Caused all kinds of problems. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac has a goes through a time of famine. He goes down to Egypt. Guess what he does? He says to his wife, hey, tell you what, uh, the king here, he's going to probably see that you're beautiful and take you into his harem. Let's just say you're my sister, right? Isaac gets in a big mess himself, right? Do we tend to repeat the mistakes of our parents? Parents, honestly, is there anything more painful than watching your sin come out in your kids? Yeah, Right? But it's a reality. So there are sort of patterns of behavior that tend to run through the generations. But kids, can you say, well, it's, my, it's the sin I inherited from my dad. 
<laughs> Can you get away with that? No, you can't get away with that. Thank God. You can't get away with that. And so that's the delicate balance that these guys, they were blaming their parents' sins for their bad circumstances and their consequences. Isn't that epidemic of human nature? Isn't that epidemic of human nature? What happens when we're confronted with our sin? What happens when we are facing a consequence of our sin? What's the first thing we do? Do we say, oh, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Is that the first thing that comes into our mind? Has anybody had kids around here? Right? Or yourself? Right? What did that, where did it start, by the way? Genesis chapter what? Three. God says, hey, Adam, what's up with eating, that tree, eating from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil that I told you not to do? And Adam was a master at it, right? He was able to blame two people. He said, hey, that woman that you gave me handed it to me and force-fed me, right? That woman that you gave me right? Eve, really? Did you do that? Yeah, the serpent made me do it. You see this? What is inherent in human nature when we're confronted with our own sin? To blame shift, right? To make excuses, to do everything but repent. To do everything but repent. We love to blame shift. We're good at it. If you live in my house for very long, you hear the words, own it. Own it. Who left the whatever? Who left the widget out that I just tripped over? Um, wouldn't me. Own it, right? If we do something, own it. If there's a consequence of it, own it. Blame shifting is just lame. Okay? So God says, stop talking, stop blaming your fathers for eating sour grapes. That's a pathetic thing. He says, behold, all sons are mine. Verse 4. All souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son are mine. The soul who sins shall die. So there's a consequence of sin and it's to be owned by the person, not by somebody else that, he could, that that person could blame. Verse 5, he says, But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he's not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but is restored to the debtor his pledge, and has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury, or taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity, and executed true judgment between man and man, if he's walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, He's just. He shall surely live, says the Lord. So this is where we've got to put it in context of the whole Bible, right? You could read that alone and say, oh, we're saved by works. I've got to do all those things and I'll be, I'll be saved, right? No. I like, what, I like how Warren Wearsby phrases this. He says, whether people lived 
under the Old Test, Old Covenant or the New Covenant, before or since the cross, the way of salvation is the same. Faith in the Lord that is evidenced by a new life of obedience. So we're not saved by these works that are described in verses 5 through 9. But if we live by faith, now as in the New Testament, if we live by faith, saved by the grace offered through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, applied to our lives, then these works kind of go with that. They kind of follow. James goes into a great detail of that, way better than I can. James says, you know, if you've got faith, there's going to be works attached to it, right? And you've heard me say before, too many times, if I believe that there's a tornado coming today, and, you know, in the next five minutes, and I don't have some kind of works that would go with that, you'd say, I didn't have that faith. I didn't believe that that was going to happen. And so there's some very simple, straightforward, logical association of works that go with faith. But we're saved by grace through faith. So it's important that we keep that together. But anyway, so basically God's describing a righteous person. Righteous person is a righteous person. He walks by faith. He does these things accordingly. Guess what? He shall surely live, says the Lord God. Well, what if he begets a son, verse 10, who's a robber or a shedder of blood? Who does any of these things and does none of, these duty, none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife? He's oppressed the poor and the needy, robbed by violence, nor restore, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to idols, or committed abomination. If he's exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? So that's the guy that says, and you you've, may have witnessed to this guy at some point, that's the guy that says, my daddy was a Baptist preacher. Well, Congratulations. <laughs> right? Is your daddy going to save you? No. no. My great-great-uncle was a godly man. Well, congratulations. Is your great-great-uncle going to save you? No. And so that's what, these, that's what he's saying here. If he's exacted usury, he's taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If, he is not, if he's done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. And so there's consequence of sin. So the godly man has an ungodly son. The godly man lives. The ungodly son faces consequence. Simple as that. Well, what if that ungodly son has another son, has, a, has the grandson of the first guy? Verse 14, if, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife. He has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and has not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among the people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So we see this throughout the kings of the Old Testament. If you look at the, at the kings, right? King Josiah was an awesome king, right? He had ungodly sons, right? The ungodly sons paid the consequence of their, of their decisions, right? Godly Josiah 
reap the consequences of his decisions. So it's just straight up, there are patterns, again, of mistakes that we sometimes make, but there are, and there are patterns of godly legacy that we make. Why are we born into a certain family? I don't know. I don't know. In so many ways, I was born to tremendous privilege. Tremendous privilege. My parents weren't perfect. My parents were far from perfect in a lot of ways. But my parents raised me in a godly home. And why did I get that and some other people don't? I, I don't have a good answer for that. Thankfully, God knows. Thankfully, God knows best. And thankfully, God is God. And that's where I can surrender it to Him. But we all have, we're all born into a certain context. And so that's just the reality of it. But at the end of the day, we're accountable for our own decisions and our own lives. Period. Verse 19. Yet you say, <clears throat> why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all the statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So God's just reiterating the summary statement. Verse 21, but if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, he keeps all of his statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all in the wicked, that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? No. So catch this now. So what's the hope for the wicked? Is it political solutions? Is it people and horses from Egypt? Is it money? Is it the stock market? Is, there, is, it, is it the right political person in office? No. What's the hope for the wicked? Repentance. And when is God's forgiveness available to the wicked who repents? Always. Always. No hoops to jump through. No hoops to jump through. Repentance is available. God's grace is available. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And catch this, he doesn't stop there. And then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My pastor up in Indianapolis used to call it the Christian bar of soap. 1 John 1, 9. Right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's amazing. He is amazing. And so, the hope for the wicked man? Repent. Verse 24. One of the most difficult verses in the Bible. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed, because of them he shall die. So, you know, I said there's this balance between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, right? So what he's saying here is, if a man 
lives a righteous life and then totally rejects that and then comes to the end of his life having totally rejected the Lord, he reaps the consequence of having rejected the Lord. So, if you're a sovereignty person, you say, ooh, I don't like that. Because if you're a sovereignty person, you think once you're saved, you're saved. And honestly, I'm a little bit of a sovereignty person. I'm not an off-the-chart sovereignty person, but I'm a little bit of a sovereignty person. What I would say to that, so, so what do you say? So you may say, well, you're wrong. Okay, I'm not going to do battle on this, by the way, right? So everybody just chill. Um, you say, well, I'm a responsibility person. I say God is both, by the way, okay? But here's what I'd say to that. Whenever you hear a dialogue, a theological dialogue, about is a person once saved, always saved? My question is, why should it matter? It's really like the question of the rich young ruler to Jesus. Good master, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Right? Let me paraphrase what he was really saying, and we know from the heart of the story. Right? What was the heart of that question? The heart of that question is, good teacher, exactly how much can I still get away with, how much can I get away with and still go to heaven? Right? If somebody's talking about once saved, always saved, they're, they're usually asking on behalf of themselves or someone else, so if I live a life of total rebellion, even though I came forward at summer camp when I was 10 years old, if I then go on to live a life of total rebellion, and then I die in that rebellious state, what happens? Right? That's really when we hear that. Am I right? That's when we hear that. My friend George Markey, years ago, many of you have heard me talk about him. Um, he was a um, missionary in Ukraine for many years and uh, um, went to a, a Bible college that was very responsibility-oriented. And he said, you know, I used to just kind of like to do stuff in class just to mess with them, right? He said, one day, we're in some kind of, we're in class, and I said, so supposing I am living a righteous life all my life, and I'm driving down the road, I see a beautiful woman by the side of the road, my head kind of wanders, I, get, I crash the car, die on the spot. Am I saved? He says, you know what? They spent the rest of the class talking about that. They couldn't agree on it. They couldn't come, they couldn't come to grips with it, right? Like that was a theological uh, quagmire that was over their head, right? Can I say, I mean, do you want to live with that kind of insecurity? Does the Bible teach that kind of insecurity? I don't think so. Having said that, I don't plan on worrying if I'm once saved, always saved. Because I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I think there is a little bit of sowing and reaping. On, well, there's a lot of sowing and reaping on earth. And I want to live as abundant of a life as I can 
till the day I die. I want to enjoy fellowship with my Heavenly Father as intimately as I can till the day I die. I'm not concerned as to whether or not I will lose my salvation along that faithful, narrow road that leads to life. So, it's a theological exercise, and frankly, nothing more. But what he is saying here is, you know what? There's consequence of turning your back on the Lord. Ezekiel 18, verse 24. There is consequence of turning your back on the Lord. That's a reality. So wherever you come down with that in the context of the whole scripture, let me encourage you to be a good Berean, Acts 17, 11. The Bereans were more noble than, th than the Thessalonians, Thessalonians in that they received the word of God with all readiness, the things that Paul said, and they examined the scripture daily to see if those things were true. We should all be Bereans. Don't take my word for it. We should all be Bereans. They examined the scripture daily to see that those things are true. If you stand before God, God says, I don't know if he'll do this, but you stand before God and God says, what'd you do with my word? Well, I listened to uh, some white-haired dude talk about it on Sunday mornings once in a while. He's going to say, are you kidding me? He may not say it that way. I would. So you get the idea, all right? We should all be Bereans. We should all read the Scripture in the context of the Scripture. So verse 25, Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair, and your ways which are not fair? It's not fair to say, my father ate sour grapes, and now I'm puckering my mouth. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, is it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Now, in terms of blame shifting and making excuses, don't blame God. Don't blame God. Guess what? In the equation between us and God, which one's the sinner? Us. So who makes the rules? God. Who calls the shots? Who sets the parameters? God. We don't decide what's fair. God does. We're the sinners. And guess what? Based on everything we know about his character, we can rest in that with great comfort because he's a lot more fair than we are. We can trust that he's fair even in ways, please hear this, please hear this. We can trust that he's fair even when we don't understand it. Even when things seem out of control unfair. He is fair even when we don't fully understand it. He's fair. He's beyond fair. Again, like I always go back, I'm on a, in my mind's on, on all these mom and dad lines that our poor kids have, to, have had to grow up with, right? And when they were younger, we're a lot more gracious than we used to be. Boy, you should have seen us years ago. 
used to say, you know, whenever a kid said, life's not fair, right? Any parents ever heard a kid say, life's not fair, right? He got three cookies, I got two, life's not fair, right? We say, you're right, life's not fair. As a matter of fact, life's extremely unfair because you deserve eternity in hell. And so did I. And the older I get, the more I'm aware of that. So yeah, if you want to say life's not fair, life's not fair. We're saved by grace. There's nothing fair about that. There's nothing fair. That Jesus Christ died for my sin. We've got no place to talk about what's fair and what's not fair. Verse 30. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, says the Lord. Repent. Repent. Stop making excuses. Stop blaming your parents. Stop blaming Eve. Stop blaming God. Repent. And turn from your transgressions so that iniquity may be, will, will not be your ruin. Please catch this. Iniquity is our ruin. I spent too many years of my life after I did, in fact, come forward at 10 years of age as a kid. And so I always say I'm a theological quandary, like if I'd have died in college, I'm not sure, <laughs> right? But I spent too many years, like, trying to play with iniquity. It's your ruin. It was destructive. Repent and turn from your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn and live. So he calls us to repent. Why? Because God doesn't want us to live in unrighteousness and reap the consequences. You know, um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 says this, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's God's desire that every single person in human history would get saved. Now God gives us enough free will, that's a responsibility statement, God gives us enough free will to accept or, re or reject that. But God's desire is that all men would be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Also in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. God wants us to be saved. However, 
we need to accept the responsibility for our own sin enough to be willing to repent when we need to without blame shifting without making excuses the sooner we realize that the sooner we're on our road to recovery and along the way can I just encourage us beware of the barriers to repentance the barriers to repentance as described in these two chapters are number one political solutions right or worldly solutions number two blame shifting number three making excuses those are the barriers to repentance the problem the solution to our sin problem is repentance the barriers to repentance are looking to worldly or political solutions blame shifting making excuses and God tells us those he lays them out he gives us the answer to the test how many of us liked open book tests in school open book tests were awesome God gives us an open book test and it's the path to abundant life and eternal life he gives us eternal life we're saved by grace through faith Ephesians chapter 2 not of works lest anyone should boast and we get to enjoy abundant life John chapter 10 I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly while we're here on earth he's amazing he's absolutely amazing let's pray Lord we do thank you that you're so good to us we thank you that life's not fair and that we are saved by grace Lord, we're thank, thankful that you offer not only grace for salvation, but you offer abundant life here on earth. And so, Lord, help us to walk faithfully. Help us to live by faith. Help us to sow to the Spirit and reap everlasting life. And help us to do it faithfully. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.